Welcome. I'm Harmony Slater, your host of the Finding Harmony podcast. Over the past 20 years, I've taught thousands of yoga teachers and students to explore the intersection between ancient wisdom and modern everyday life using mind-body practices to heal, awaken, and manifest their dreams from the inside out. This podcast is a sanctuary for those feeling overwhelmed by life's challenges. Are you ready to jump in and discover how these challenges aren't actually in the way, but are the way to finding harmony? Let's invite the magic back in. Hello and welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. It's a new year, it's a new season, and I'm so happy you're here joining us. We are about to kick off 2024 with an incredible guest who's a dear old friend of ours that we all met in Mysore years ago, but now she is Dr. Jean Brine. She is also a research fellow who specializes in developing mind-body interventions for mental health. She also owns a 17-year-old yoga school called The Yoga Space with her partner, who also is a doctorate, uh, Dr. Rob Schultz in Perth, Australia. The two of them are a power couple, but we are meeting with Jean today to dive into some of her research, what she has discovered through researching mind-body interventions and yoga, and also her experience over the years with her own personal practice. She is a mother of two children, as well as a highly acclaimed researcher and scholar, and she's writing chapters in books, as well as doing all kinds of things, as well as running a yoga school and maintaining her own practice. So how does she do it all? We are going to find out. And if you've ever wondered if the yoga practice really works and what it's doing to you, we are going to find out today. And maybe you've had the question, you know, what's better? Iyengar yoga, Bikram yoga, Ashtanga yoga, Shivananda yoga? Well, you're also going to find out the answer to that question in this interview today based on the research. And if you've ever also had the question wondering what's more effective, is it meditation? Is it breath work? Is it asana? We're also going to try to come to the bottom of that question as well. So today is a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And if you would like to receive a two-minute free breathwork practice, I would love for you to head on over to my website, harmonieslater.com, and you can download that beautiful practice right now. And it goes along so perfectly with this episode because it gives you an immediate way to disrupt that pattern in your nervous system of reacting or holding stress and tension, and it can help you relax throughout the day. It only takes two minutes to start to regulate your nervous system, and we're going to learn all about the benefits of doing that in this episode with Jean Brine. So let's get started. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm here today with Russell Kay. Is this the new intro and the new sound, this one? Yes. It is? Everyone's already heard the new music? Because it's a new year, yes. Yeah. We're so excited because Got today... Got mate. Yes, <laughs> we're speaking with Jean. Busy mates. 
How are you? Yeah, I'm really well. It's really nice to see you both. It's been, what, Russell said 20 years? Harmony, maybe it's been 10? I think 10, yeah. I think, yeah, with the last time that we spoke, we were all married to different people. Is that correct? I'm no. married to the same person. Actually, <laughs> no. I, I went to Mossel for the first time married to that person. We are, wow. uh, yeah, we, we that drove guy? Across, yeah, we drove across the border from Singapore to Malaysia, got married, and I flew back to Australia while he stayed there the same day. And yeah, it seemed to work out. That wow. guy, Rob, that guy? That guy, Rob, yep. Oh my God. <laughs> 23 years, you said? <laughs> about 23, yeah. Is Amazing. he still really tall and good looking, that guy? He's still tall and, like, and good smart, looking. right? He's he was educated. He had a, like a PhD or something ridiculous. In psychology yeah. and pain. And yeah, he's a research oh. fellow and a clinical psychologist at a hospital. So he does, yeah. and he teaches a bit of yoga. That is intimidating. <laughs> like it? a side job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> retreats, mainly silent retreats, which are nice. Yeah. Yeah. Silent retreats. You, you know, at the time, it. I remembered you, the two of you, as being a kind of power couple, but also like the archetype of what we were all to aspire to. Just like we should all have a PhD in yoga studies. We should be married. We should be wholesome. We should be Australian. That helps him to help. And <laughs> then, and then I was like, "That's yeah, that's what I wanted." And I, I think we all kind of felt like that was a thing that we should be actively pursuing, don't you think, Harm? I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't think that. That pursuing a PhD was no, no, a um, marriage, a perfect kind oh, of a square perfect marriage. marriage. Yes. Yeah, I think sometimes you take quite a bizarre road to get there, <laughs> and you know it is interesting when we we always had that feedback in my socks. We started going there together, and there was a steadiness in that for us, yeah. but people aren't living in our brains, which <laughs> are uh, you know the outward steadiness for lies and inward fluctuation on the daily of course of course but that is something we 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 went all in on yeah 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 and I mean that's so I think it's so cool because you both are like these academic giants (laughs) I mean in our community really like you really were able to maintain practice going to Mysore starting a yoga school I think 17 years ago yeah and also continuing your education, getting masters, getting PhDs, getting even more, another masters. <laughs> really, really? Yeah. So my first real question is how, I mean, how were you able to balance all of these different things? Because it takes a lot to run a yoga school. It also, oh, and you also have two children. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think she said that there was some fluctuation. Yeah, yeah there's fluctuations, yeah. But, but still, I mean, you're both highly successful, basically having three or four jobs each. <laughs> Essentially, yes. And I think that's a bit of an issue now that we're getting older. And maybe I think for us, this sense of balance, it's elusive and it comes in waves. So there's a steadiness, but there's this consistent fluctuating. And I think being able to do it together and being grounded in a daily, I mean, you know, this being grounded in a daily sadhana mm-hmm. is I think what changes everything. And and I suppose that's what a lot of your listeners will know as well. And now, you know, the research that we do, it's just so clear. Yoga works on dose and mm. it impacts our capacity to concentrate or our mental health, our physical health. So I think without that ground, things would get really, really shaky. Did you say that yoga works on dose? 
Yeah. That's what you said? It's like medicine. I've never heard that expression before. <laughs> Works on dose. As a, like a dose of yoga helps. Like if you are told to take antibiotics and right. you need to take a certain course. So what the research uh, showing on how yoga works for mm-hmm. your mental health and your physical health is that it's important to be consistent with it. So the dose that you get, as in the length of time and the regularity, that is going to be related to how it impacts your anxiety, your depression, your hypertension, your you know your asthma, your ADHD, all of these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so interesting. And tell us more about this research. Okay. How do you know this for sure? <laughs> well, I think one good thing to think about is, you know, a lot of people have a problem with the yoga research that's happening in the West and you know, say yeah. things like, you know, these scholars have barely dipped their toes in the ocean of yoga, I think was one of the quote. This research started in India and you would know this at Kavalyadam. Yeah. Yeah. So post-colonial India, people started testing yoga. So How do we know it? Because there's different levels of evidence and research. And essentially, now people in their search for kind of accessible and affordable healthcare have realized that people are practicing yoga because it gives them this physical and emotional sense of well-being. So people have started studying it. And it's like mindfulness or meditation. You know, there's been three decades worth of research now. And in the last decade, the yoga research is just absolutely booming. Yeah, so that's what we're working on over here. Amazing. And especially, I think, like, breathwork research has really exploded, too. I mean, and it even started with, like, meditation and mindfulness Mm. and, like, all of the mind-body practices, I think, right? People are really interested in how they're affecting our emotions. Exactly. And we would notice from being in India, there's this long tradition, even though perhaps how we might understand yoga is maybe not what yoga was in India, but there's a bi-directional relationship between the mind and body and very few modern therapies address that bi-directional relationship, but yoga does, even more than, say, sitting meditation because there's movement. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Did you hear at all about the, the Stanford research study on the effects of yoga as a dose on, um, on middle school children? I don't know it well, but it worked, right? It did. Yeah, it did. <laughs> that's my understanding. So my, you know, my job was to coordinate the school teachers. Yeah. And make sure that they, you know, that they were all right. They would, you know, they'd call me at 830 at night. Yeah. You know, complaining about, you know, pregnancy and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And my, so I just made sure they got to the job and did the thing. And then yeah. we measured them and made sure that the scientists weren't too much in their way and but it the the most incredible well the most statistically significant result was language acquisition yeah is that there was this it was a very demonstrable effect on the ability of children to acquire language which was which was really kind of out of left field i didn't expect that you know but, i think but, you know, things like that if we think about our like our kids when people are regulated, and I don't know if you've heard of polyvagal theory, but when people mm-hmm. are in that kind of social connected and calm state, they can just take on a lot more information. And so you asked about how I did all these things. I think it was practice, that consistent regulator. And that's not why I, when I started practice, and I know that, you know, with your study as well, Harmony, you were a bit like this. I was quite interested in I went quite out there, you know, because I started yeah. with psychedelic and then I got into intense meditation and studying religion at uni, this whole kind of more transcendent approach. And what I started to realize is 
you know, this transpersonal psychology idea, you can't transcend the self without a solid sense of self. And so I think as you're saying, Russell, this regulated, calm nervous system can just take in so much more, but it's like people want to skip over that part of getting really Mm -hmm. calm and steady and get Mm -hmm. to, you know, these kind of expansive states of consciousness. But how useful are they if we don't have that steadiness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's interesting. That reminds me a lot of the the people that we spoke to in in Brazil who seem to have a rather robust approach to people who are having emergent experiences through mm-hmm. psychedelics and mm-hmm. uh, spiritual experiences, and they really try and provide a mechanism for them to say adjust to the experience. Yeah. Whereas you know. In the United States, you might just have a set break in the middle of a Grateful Dead concert, and that's all you really get. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's because yeah. we're not we're not seeing people as whole people, you know. Like, yeah, we're not understanding that you know that history, whether it's their adverse childhood events and things they've experienced, mm-hmm. or trauma, and then the initiating events that you're talking about, and then things start to emerge and I think we've all experienced these really difficult moments in life and sometimes it's hard for us to know exactly what we need and to access the right support, which is why having this container of practice becomes Mm -hmm. so, for me at least, so steadying. Yeah. I I think we will be, I was going to comment, but maybe you could, you could speak to this further. Is it both Harmony and I had very kind of intense emergent experiences with psychedelics that were extremely uncomfortable. And then, you know, you try and figure out like, what, what do you do with this, this knowledge now that was not wanted. And yet here we have it and we have to kind of then, you know, continue to interact with our parents in a positive way. (laughs) Did you find uh, maybe Harmony could speak more on that? And uh, I didn't mean to interrupt her, but did you? All, were you also finding that that seems a fairly typical arc to do psychedelics and get into a spiritual practice? You know, like George Harrison, you know, taught us to do, and then <laughs> to study yoga more intensively. Was were you having experiences that were quite uncomfortable in that in that f- that first try in the psychedelic period? Yeah, yeah. So. My psychedelic period when I was, was when I was a teenager, so from yeah. 15 to 17, and which I obviously really do not recommend for teenagers and developing brains, not a good idea. Right. And I think I had a lot of anxiety and, you know, my loving family but totally dysregulated household. I was just, I don't know, it, I think it was like true And I think it's hard to find the exact words for it, the kind of constellation of experience, but that's what led me to yoga and meditation because I remember just understanding that there was a falsity to the entire world that I was participating in. And Mm -hmm. it was like a truth that didn't have words, but it was felt and it was just in me. And I, you know, inverted, there was a knowing. And so for me, yeah, similarly, so at 17, I remember sitting in my dingy apartment because I'd moved out of home and I was like, right, I'm going to do this without LSD. And I just started <laughs> meditating and that's, yeah, that's what led me 30 years ago to yoga is this sense that there was must be something more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. I mean, there's, I think there's kind of like the light and the dark side of those experiences mm, okay. and maybe it's kind of 
plays out in what we all naturally experience, but more so when you're kind of aware of the illusion that we're living in and it can become quite desolate and desperate at some times when you're like, this is all fucking meaningless. Mm. It is. (laughs) I reckon what happens in that moment, and I feel like this is what taught me, you know, and I was under 18, it's not a really good time to be learning this lesson, was this sense of complete surrender. Like it's like the hand, the fist like this. For me, if I didn't just completely yield that resistance made things very very difficult and it was interesting to learn that through such a kind of forceful substance because when we learn that through yoga and meditation it's much gentler I think it's much more advisable and I don't know but for me it served me like giving birth for example it was a similar (laughs) sort of I just have to give over completely Yeah. yeah Yeah. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, I I I felt like the experience in hindsight as a fifteen year old being given an enormous amount Mm. of LSD was quite a lot like say a kind of traumatizing early sexual experience or witnessing abuse by your parents. It's like there is all that's left of your personality is the witness. Mm-hmm. And you have this thing and you're a witness to it. And that's, and it's like, oh, this is really what it means to be an adult is this is just, I was no, I was just so much aware of um, the, the before and after yeah. uh, of that experience that I was never the same again. And yeah. I'm now kind of awake. And that's uh, why I think psychedelics got shut down. Well, besides mm-hmm. the whole socio-political context and the war on drugs, the way in which, unfortunately, some of the prominent teachers were using them was so irresponsible. And, you know, as you know, at the moment, my role is at, in the research role is designing mind-body interventions, whether that's yoga interventions for mental health or at the moment designing a mindfulness intervention for people with persistent pain to take alongside psychedelic-assisted therapy with psilocybin. And I think one of the issues is the way in which these substances have been used recreationally because people aren't being prepared for these experiences appropriately and they're not being debriefed appropriately. So the way psychedelic-assisted therapy works, at least in Australia, and it's just emerging, is you have to do therapy with a clinical psychologist to prepare you. Then you have two clinical psychologists in a room with you and you debrief a few times, few sessions, then you do it again. And then it's, I think the way it's being seen potentially working for pain is it creates this window of neuroplasticity. So it creates this window which the right. brain can start to change mm. and whether that's for trauma or pain or depression. But if you don't have the container, then it's really difficult. And it's the same with practice. Like sometimes we just need, for me at least, I need to do a doctor system for a long period of time. And that started with Vipassana and then it was Zazen and then Ashtanga Yoga because it just holds you, right? So mm-hmm. it's just contained those parameters and then you can settle into that. And I think psychedelic assisted therapy is the same, which is why if you just go hardcore once or a few times or you're young and you don't have the support, yeah. that's what I did. But fortunately, I was with a kind of, it was always very, just one or two people, very, very close friends. It was always very deep. Um, So I could safely just relinquish. Yeah. That was always my my favorite experience was like one or two people 
and like in a place that I felt very comfortable. Yeah. Safe, um, the few times that that you know I got high or experimented in a in a party situation or a group situation, I always ended up like leaving, like almost immediately and going somewhere alone. <laughs> And I feel like that with practice now. Like every yeah. now and then I'll go to a yoga space class because I know everyone or I'll jump on online yeah. and do a class. I did that yesterday. But mostly I just yeah. like to practice alone on my yeah. deck. Yeah. Yeah. In the heat, in the Australian heat. In the Australian heat. heat. <laughs> <laughs> but let's, let's talk a little bit about that because I think that's super interesting, probably informed even the work that you're doing now too. Um, like the Ashtanga method is so intense yeah and yeah i mean like let's be honest if you're doing it like correct method traditional style um it takes like an hour and a half minimum yeah to go through one series yeah and that's kind of how we all learned and mm -hmm. we're taught yeah and you know groomed to teach <laughs> the yep. correct method from mysore india it's a high dose. And yeah, and, and so that's big like dose. how it works. Yeah, it's a big dose. And that's yeah. how you also like practiced and taught for many years. But yeah. now your practice obviously is quite different. What are some of the things that kind of came in and helped you change yeah. that yeah. type of practice? And I know like a lot of people really struggle with like guilt yeah. and shame, like, you know, sure. oh, I only did sun salutations today, I didn't practice, or they, they're concerned they're going to lose their practice, or like there's all kinds of stuff that comes up. And you know, yeah. because yeah. you teach. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think I was lucky because I started Ashtanga with a very stable meditation practice, and yeah. I would often practice a lot of restorative yoga. So while I was really mm -hmm. into it, you know, I remember being a Bali and Rolf you know, Rolf Narakat was always very understanding, yeah. but, you know, Rob rocked up one day and he's like, where's Jane? And Rob was like, she's having a holiday. And Rob was like, oh, ladies holiday, you know, your period. Yeah, yeah. And Rob was like, no, just holiday, holiday. <laughs> I was pretty, I was very into it, but yeah, I had that background and I also wasn't very physically talented. Like I could go to Mysore for six months but it yeah. took me 11 years to put my leg behind my head. Like things didn't mm -hmm. come very easily for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that in itself was a really good lesson. And then right. having children was another lesson. I did go back to Mysore really intensely a lot with kids. Yeah. I wanted to reinvigorate my practice. But I think I had this sense even before studying psychology that I wanted them to be securely attached and mm -hmm. Rob and I wanted to have that kind of responsiveness. And so yoga practice had to shift to accommodate that. Um, but, yeah, there was still the years of doing a bit too much, lots of injuries, so many injuries, um, mm -hmm. repetitive <laughs> movement. Because if yeah. you're not doing all the third series and fourth series, you're doing primary and intermediate all the time. And then for me, yeah. you know, after having kids, I was like, oh, tired, so just too much primary. So I started to, what I had to do is after me to hit the Ashtanga community, I'd quite a lot pulled back on studying, practicing Ashtanga, particularly strictly, because in my head was Sharat and Tabi Joyce's voices. And yeah, I really yeah. wanted my practice to be my own. And so that's not there anymore. But, you know, I am grateful to Sharat for, he was generous with me when I practiced with him. But 
I needed to own my own practice. And Mm -hmm. it's this fine line, I think, when you're new to practice, it's difficult is you do need some discipline. Like you said, you need that dose. You need a container and you Mm -hmm. need a dose. But you also need to be in a situation where you are aware of what your body needs. Yeah. But I think that takes time to develop. It it takes time to develop what you do need. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of how the journey has been for me. And then perimenopause kicks in. Right, yeah. And then, <laughs> tell, tell everyone what happens. <laughs> everyone wants to know. <laughs> well, this is one day where you haven't menstruated for 12 months. Yeah. So women yeah. or people who menstruate, they menstruate. And then the first thing that happened for me is my period started to go weird. Well, I was inf- infertile. Yeah. I couldn't get pregnant with my second kid for like seven years. And my period started to go weird. And then you start to have weight gain and skin changes and then I became anemic but I didn't know my hair was falling out and then I Mm -hmm. felt a lot of rage (laughs) and anger that was I mean I had that when I was younger and a lot of inflammation in the body hot flushes Mm -hmm. inability to sleep Mm -hmm. have your period for 40 days and then don't have it for six months so yeah. lots, and that's still going on, and they can go on for women for about seven years. And I think what happens, it's a it's a decline in estrogen. Mm-hmm. So there's fluctuating hormones. So it's like going through the onset of menstruation, like when you're a teenager, and yeah. nobody talks. But worse, about it. yeah. <laughs> What's well, worse and- for me? <laughs> I feel like instead of like feeling like you're you're stepping into your <laughs> you're like a beautiful radiant goddess woman, <laughs> you're sort of like prepping yourself to embrace like I'll say like the wise old crone mm. you know <laughs> archetype which Rihanna. which our society really doesn't celebrate right doesn't and I think women turn it in on themselves when they're going through yeah. these changes because they want to live up to societal expectations or their partners or their mm-hmm. kids or their work or their, their yoga teachers, which is pretty, mm-hmm. sorry, I won't swear, messed up. Yeah. It's. Are you not swearing on purpose? <laughs> I don't know. I, we swear a lot you're, in Australia. Oh, you're no. allowed to swear I, on I, this I, podcast. Oh. Yeah, we swear a lot God. in Australia. Yeah, we, we, we encourage swearing. I, I would say, <laughs> just as an aside, in the first time that I taught in Australia, I went up to someone and I was explaining to them how to do a posture. I think it was like Marichi Asana D. And I was like, if you put your foot here, mm. you just turn it in a little bit, you will get the effect that you're looking for. And she said, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> she went, oh my God, really? Fuck off. Like, that's really? what that means. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now, I know now yeah. that's what that means. Then, you're like, when she told me to fuck off, I said, oh, I think you just want me to fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, too, right? If you're teaching yoga, there's some pressure there to kind of keep up and and maintain a certain standard of... of, um, I think there is in the Ashtanga community, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and when I would start going back to my story, I would have a lot of people comment on my weight, actually. Right. (laughs) Those Fuckers. Yeah, like really oh regularly God. comment on my weight, and even like maybe one of the, I can't remember some. It wasn't Sharat, but even a local was like, "Oh, if you were my wife, I would, or if you were my sister-in-law, I would." I uh, something or other about me being fat, and it was it was pretty consistent right. happening after the kids. 
And I think yeah. a lot of, I think in Ashtanga, people forget this notion, at least this is what I believe, that form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Like the form mm. is important, but it's inherently empty. Like it's not, yeah. it's in my opinion, I know lots of Ashtangis are going to agree with me, but maybe in the same way they've changed their opinions on practice, maybe in another 10 years, they'll change their opinions <laughs> on the history of Ashtanga. It's not an old system. It's a system that yeah. works for me and a lot of people, but it doesn't mean it's really old. I don't feel like it's functional, but it, it works. And I don't know if it works for me because I've been doing it 17 or 20 years, or I don't, mm-hmm. don't know if it works because it actually, there's something inherent to it. And nobody knows the answer to that question. Yeah. But the way in which the Ashtanga system is set up as a hierarchy of performance is really mm-hmm. problematic. <laughs> And people have internalized value systems. And as someone who never got certified and wasn't the person that people were like, oh my God, your practice is so amazing. Um, It was always interesting to watch. You know, I'd go back and then, you know, I decide after five years of having kids, all right, I might go to lead intermediate because I was just doing Mm -hmm. whatever I needed. And Shrap actually always respected that. And people would be like, oh my God, you've made it to the lead intermediate class. Congratulations. And I would be like, yeah, like 15 years ago, I haven't <laughs> wanted to do this. And it's like the shock, but how could you not want to do this? Because you're so special when your body does these things. And I think yeah. people are just getting really fancy postures. But then I see people just constantly blowing their lives up and just mm-hmm. not steady and can't, you know, just enjoy the life, the one life that they have. Because there's mm-hmm. this, like you're saying, this guilt and this obsession and I think as teachers, we need to be so careful that we're yeah. not feeding into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard because like you say, it's embedded within the system itself. And so even if you are very conscious of it mm-hmm. and doing your best not to feed into it, I do have the suspicion that when you're really like bought into the system, you can't help but reinforce that hierarchical nature because it is within the method itself if you're practicing in that way that it's taught in Mysore well, India. If you can't do handstands, how are you going to fucking teach? <laughs> right? Like it's so, it's, I mean, and, and that itself is a bit of a paradox because like you say, the yoga works in that, you know, your nervous system's more re- regulated. People are having a more positive experience of their life in many ways. And, you know, they're making healthier choices in many ways for themselves, yeah. often, sometimes not, but often. <laughs> and, and yet that kind of um, buying in to this, this status of the body, right, being able to do certain things and then unconsciously connecting that to levels of success. Yeah. Or enlightenment, or advancement, <laughs> and I or think inherent, there's an inherent ableism and yeah. privilege there. So yes, if you are you know well attached to your parents and financially secure and all of the, of course you can go to Mysore for multiple times over your your lifetime. And in the same way, if you're physically gifted, then you are just going to move through this system and get seniority quicker. Mm-hmm. And for me, it is a, I think it's also reflective of the larger conversations that are happening in the world where a multitude of perspectives 
very difficult for people to to hold, whether it's yes. in a conversation about politics or whether it's in how we might best practice Ashtanga yoga. And I even saw on the internet the other day, someone here in Perth said, there's no pure Ashtanga yoga, you know, in Perth. And it's like, well, what is pure? And the notion that there is this static history of yoga that has not been evolving with traditions and philosophical systems constantly in conversation with each other and then exported and imported back. Yoga's been in this constant state of change. And so I suppose for me, I'm feeling quite comfortable now, you know, whatever, however many years, 27, 28 years into practice to start to, for example, one of the things I do is I design sequences. So I design interventions and with Clint Sykes and yoga teachers, I think actually Mark Roberts helped in the last one and Oliver Crossley and a few a physiotherapists, a few other people and their input to help design sequences that we think based on the evidence are going to work for people's mental health. Um, and, you know, in some schools of yoga, that's just heresy. <laughs> right. Yeah, it is the definition of heresy. Yeah, it is the definition that, of heresy. Mm, yeah. That's so interesting. So tell me more about that. If, you know, is it for like if someone's experiencing depression or someone's having anxiety? Sciatica. Or is there physical things as well? Like what what are the like what kind of sequences would you be designing? Well, it's good to know just briefly why. So, for example, if you go to your doctor and you like have anxiety, it's likely you have comorbid depression or ADHD or asthma or hypertension. So as a whole person, we're all struggling with all sorts of different things and Mm -hmm. we go get treatment. And we get treatment, treatment siloed. It's like you get treatment for this one thing. Here's some anti-anxiety medication or here's your hypertension medication. Mm-hmm. But you're a whole person with all sorts of struggles and need for support to thrive. So rather than siloing treatment, when we think about yoga, it's what's called transdiagnostic. So it targets things like sleep and emotional regulation and heart rate variability in order because they're the things that underlie so many of these conditions. So we know yoga works, but we're not exactly sure the mechanisms. People think it's like the HPA axis and those sort of transdiagnostic factors, but we don't know about the sequences because we don't know who's designing them. We don't know what's in them. So what we are doing, we're running a randomized controlled trial for anyone with any sort of mental health concern from stress to, you know, serious depression. And we've got a sequence and that sequence involves meditation and pranayama and some gentle postures, building up to sun salutes, some standing postures, and it winds back down and includes a yoga nidra, which increases in length every every week. And the research needs to be replicable. So someone else needs to go, right, well, this works if it ends up working. If this works and it's divided up like this, this much pranayama, this much, um, you know, asana. And I think that's what we're all doing for ourselves, right? We've got this laboratory of our own experience mm-hmm. where we're trying to figure out, okay, how much pranayama asana or yoga nidra or meditation is going to work for me? And I think that's one of the difficult things when you're so hardcore hooked on a system is yeah. that there's little room to actually make sure your individual needs are being met. Mm, I, w- yeah. I would argue it's a, uh, not hooked as much as indoctrination. Oh, tell, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that's, I just to like kind of build on that, I think that's true. I mean, I think you and I were very, very fortunate and lucky 
that our first introduction to yoga was through a different path, yes, right? So exactly. you started with meditation. Yeah. I also started with Buddhist meditation and right. then all, simultaneously almost to, and then I practiced like other styles of yoga Same. before I did Ashtanga, which you did too. So yes. already there's kind of an openness to yoga global yeah. <laughs> as a discipline, as a form. And, you know, practiced, experimented with some pranayama and learned about Ayurveda and like was into all these different kind of modalities that were all kind of in this big Venn diagram called yoga, right? (laughs) And then got really heavily into Ashtanga, but also the same year that I went to Mysore, I also met... Yeah, Sri Opi Tawari, who was the head of the Kavalyadam Institute, who is main practice and all of their research is around kriyas and pranayama yeah and so i always had these two gurus bad lady (laughs) um (laughs) it was always quite and two practices that i was doing simultaneously and devoting as much energy to at the same time and within the culture that wasn't encouraged not whatsoever and so i was always kind of like you know similar to you kind of like yeah. yeah, I got one foot in this camp, but I also have one foot in this camp. And also, I just like yoga, all of it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, it's really interesting. I think that you're like the original, no, not really, but what's his name? <laughs> I'm Winston Smith. I somehow was at the bookstore and re-picked up 1984. Yeah. And, oh. Yeah. And just this idea of group think, like it's so appealing. Yeah. And I think it is much easier, yet... Yeah. I think in the end, it does us a disservice. I think it's helpful for a while because it gets people on their mat and it gets them that dose, Mm -hmm. but it can't persist forever. And being in a hierarchical relationship with a teacher, that has an expiry date in in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For you and for us all to kind of grow, we have to take responsibility for our own life ultimately. I think yeah. I, that's, abso- that's absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I'm just kind of now rethinking or, or looking back on the first few years of Ashtanga yoga practice and what techniques of indoctrination were, were occurring. And it was all kind of, you know, very, you know, my first yoga class at all was an Ashtanga yoga class. Yeah, and right. And then I just did that for three years and I didn't, nobody really talked, everybody just practiced. Okay. And then occasionally there would be a kind of conference. And I didn't realize at the time that he was kind of mirroring what, what Patabi Joyce is yeah. doing. And in the conference, the culture was inculcated onto us. And he would talk about the violence of Patabi Joyce. He would talk about, um, you know, what he was like. And it kind of created a kind of, a mystery that we could be intrigued by. Mm. And then at the same time, the teacher himself was coming back from Mysore every winter mm-hmm. and he would be thin and tan when he came back. Yeah. And so I'm projecting onto him, um, well, you know, my Western form of, of valors, you know, that valorizes thin yeah. and youth in a middle-aged man. It's like, oh, he doesn't look like... Mm. Any other middle-aged man, he's a thin, tan middle-aged like, yes. middle-aged man. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so, you know, I'm being hooked. Yeah. As you said, I'm being hooked into, um, you know, maybe you could help explain it to me better. But I'm being hooked into many kind of different layers of attachment. 
and I'm observing it and then desiring it and taking it and going after it myself. I, I mean, it checks lots of boxes, right? The word attachment what is boxes? interesting because I think in the Mysore room, particularly for anybody who had insecure attachment with a parent figure, this provides this kind of secure attachment. It's like a daily presence. The teacher's there, you're there. And so then what starts to happen is people start to perform for the teacher and there's a transference and a counter-transference. We have all of this transference onto the teacher and parentify them in, in a certain way, I think. And then the teacher mm. has counter-transference with how the student should be and how the student should behave. Mm. And I think for me, at least, what was protective is I didn't actually practice in that tiny old Charlotte with Patabi Joyce because I remember thinking, I'm not sitting in, a, I'm not paying to sit in a line to do yoga. That's not a thing I'm going to do. So I went and practiced with Sharat in a, in a smaller room, which was pretty casual at the time. But yeah, I do think it's easier for teachers. I think as many teachers enjoy the control and the distance of being an expert. So they're the expert and we shall follow their instructions. And I feel mm -hmm. like emotionally, that's a much easier place to be. There's a kind of untouchability. It's, it's, there's an unreality to it as well, but there's an untouchability mm -hmm. to that. And then those who get closer in proximity, who perform the way, and this is in lots of spiritual traditions, teachers want them to perform. They actually start to get benefits. Like you, and you see that in the Ashtanga community. No one's allowed to do teach training unless you're <laughs> people and then you're allowed to do Ashtanga teacher training. So, yeah. It's an unusual way that people, I think, are playing out their, yeah. their attachment. And for some people, uh, that wasn't what it was for me. It was a helpful container. But it, mm -hmm. I think it did persist a little bit beyond what was helpful for me. Certainly did for Rob. Yeah. Well, th that's, that's incredible because then as a teacher, what I was also then seeking out was this, the same kind of uh, archetype. Mm -hmm. Now I'm in control. Yeah. And you're going to fucking do what I tell you. Yeah. yeah. And then everything falls into place for me as a personality. Well, well, it's, it's just smoother, isn't it, right? There's more students. Yeah. There are a lot of people in the world who want to be told what to do. Um, yeah. And you, it makes you a very popular teacher. But we see now, like we, we can look at the Ashtanga community and the teachers before our time. They all were like this, 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 and this. And now they're starting to change their perspectives. And we're like, uh, yeah, of course. Like we all knew that. Yeah. Um, right. but yeah, it's, it's an, it's a, it's basically for me, it's power and it's the way power yeah. plays out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. for many, yeah. when me too hit the Ashanga community, that was actually really positive because that kind of lack of kind of faith. Um, in and then in how you know lots of senior teachers behaved and the way in which people wanted to retain their power at mm. all costs yeah. was really interesting to observe. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love yeah, this. It is interesting. <laughs> and I mean, just like I mean, from all of your studies in psychology, it's so fascinating because I feel like there's a lot of kind of unhealthy dynamics that go on. Mm. I mean. And we'll just talk about the Ashtanga lineage because that's yeah, what we're all yeah. like super familiar with. But it does happen in in all kinds of other yoga yeah, lineages cool. for sure. And meditation. But yeah. Yeah. And, and meditation. And yeah. academic. Like yoga global. Yeah, and academic. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think like what you've been studying and learning and even like 
culture itself is kind of shifting into a more、um, therapeutic kind of dynamic. And can you just like talk about the differences between those two structures? Because they seem actually like quite different, like the hierarchical versus,、um, you know, coming into a, a co kind of creative space. I kind of often think of it in terms of that vertical and horizontal、yeah. relationality. And、yeah. I think it begins with how the teacher wants themselves to be seen. And for me, at least, I'm uncomfortable with being pedestaled in that way because I'm quite aware when people do it at a certain point, they're going to have to rip it out. And、yeah. I just don't need that sort of drama in my life. So now at Rogers Place, for example, everyone's very mature and they're like, I'm here for my support.、Yeah. I want support, but this is my life. This is my practice.、Mm-hmm. And I think people are quite uncomfortable with the in between. I think the more experience you get as a teacher, the easier it is for you to know what you're about and not need to rely on students for your self esteem, for your professional identity, and to also understand, at least for me, that I can't save other people from themselves. And I may、mm-hmm. not be what they're looking for in a teacher because maybe right now they really want to teach and it's just really going to take that power over relationship and. Tell them what's to do, and that will make them turn up five days a week. I don't think it's helpful in the long run, and I don't want to be anyone's paramaguru. So it's, <laughs> I think it's tricky. People find what they need, but then I think sometimes they stay in it a little bit too long, and that's very financially rewarding for teachers. Yeah. 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 I mean, there is, there is some monetary benefits to maintaining that structure and maintaining that kind of control and, over and people. And those relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. to be honest, I think sometimes people aren't always aware of the、mm-hmm. level of control that they have over other people. I think they can be quite aware because in yoga traditions, we aren't trained to understand that, which is why, you know, as I go on this journey to become a clinical psychologist, the ethical frameworks are so. Strict, you know, there is such strong professional standards, and there's just not the same professional standards in in yoga,、yeah. which there should be because we're working with the whole person and it's such a vulnerable space. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing that really became very apparent to me. I've done three coach certification programs, and all of them, I mean, even though coaching isn't like therapy or psychology, but there are ethical guidelines. And if you're going to, you know, apply to be a national board or a internationally certified coach, you need to actually、yeah. really uphold like very ethical standards and everything needs to be very upfront and explained. It needs to be an agreement. There needs to be agreements. And I think it's such a eye opening thing because, like you say, in yoga, We enter these relationships and there are no agreements. There's not. And I think one thing that people can perhaps, if they're listening and wondering about their relationship with their teacher, it's like, what's your ability to ask questions? Do you feel、yeah. comfortable? Do you feel comfortable saying no? And over time, I think our body sends us, our nervous system sends us messages and we consistently ignore them sometimes. <laughs> that these kind of red flags that are popping up. Before our brain even cottons on to this isn't healthy for me, as we start to tune in, we can feel it's something's not quite right. And I think when we're in some sort of guru shisha relationship, it's very easy to just start keep pressing the off button on how that feels.、Mm-hmm. But those, that feeling, that embodied sense 
is just so essential to listen to. Yeah. yeah. I have a student who, um, or a long time ago I had a student who, her previous experience had, had been kind of rather destructive and, and she started dreaming about her teacher. I used to dream about Patabi Joyce and Shrat. Did, did you both? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Even like a month ago, I think before I did an interview with Peg, something came to me in a dream, but I was quite different in the dream. Yeah. 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 I wasn't a student. Well, well, just to say that the, that this culminated in her dreaming about her teacher breaking her leg. And then she went into practice and was getting her foot behind her head. Yeah. And in fact, her fibula broke off her knee while being adjusted. And I was just amazed. I was just really stunned. Like the, the body and the mind yeah. knew she was in danger, knew that she was, she was working towards a stress fracture. And was desperately trying to tell her. She was desperately trying to tell herself that she was in danger, but she hadn't been listening and didn't feel that she could say no to the adjustment. Yeah. And see, I think this is a thing with trauma. I think it's something really important for us to remember. And when we think about, you know, obviously we all know fight, flight, but there's also flock and there's fawn. And I think there can be a lot of fawn in spiritual communities sometimes. And I'm not commenting on this particular person because I don't know them. But what I have noticed is when people are little, they have survival strategies, right? So if they have an abusive parent, if they fawn and try to meet their every need, they survive. Mm -hmm. Or if they fight, they yeah. survive. Or if they run away and go to their friend's house, they survive. And then these strategies, mm -hmm. they carry on in our relationships and they certainly carry on in yoga, teacher-student relationships. And as a teacher, I feel like we have this huge responsibility to be consistently creating space for a student to mm -hmm. have the, to ask them questions about their practice and what they need. And that's actually what we've started doing in our MISOR program recently, having workshops led by Rob, who's a clinical psychologist. And there's an hour of basically group therapy where there's a conversation that occurs about the practice. Because like you're saying, we're, we're getting all these messages, but in a guru shishya system, we're told to, we're, we're kind of cut off from ourselves, And in that yeah. way, it's not very trauma sensitive. And we need to be gentle with ourselves if we have experienced trauma or early life adversity with the sort of context that we put ourselves in. Yeah. Oh, that's so important. That's, that's, I hope people are taking notes. <laughs> it's psychedelics. That's why I'm not like up yeah. here where I live. Everyone's off in, I live just outside the city in the hills. I'm off at ayahuasca ceremonies with right. random hippies and I'm sure they're nice, but I don't know, like it's dangerous. Like there's a danger to it. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that's so important. This is something we were talking about the other day is how these tools like yoga, right, where you're sitting with like an uncomfortable sensation yep. and learning to breathe mm -hmm. and be with it and regulate yes. are really powerful tools to have. Mm -hmm. But they can also be used in a very... Um, Inappropriate way. Yeah, like in a manipulative way, right? Where yeah. instead of listening to what your body's saying, you're learning to... Override it. Override it. Now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we were talking about this um, with with yoga, but also it can happen even like, you know, you see this with the cults all the time. We're really yeah. into yeah. watching cult documentaries, right? We like, love watching cults. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> you have the, <laughs> the work of... 
It's quite informative in some... Uh, uh, but, you know, you have this work of Byron Katie, which I know you're yeah. probably familiar with, yeah. right? Like the questioning your beliefs and turning it around. It really opens your perspectives and what else is true, what else is possible, recognizing that our entire reality is just made up of But then beliefs. people start gaslighting themselves. And this is... Right? The people and it's dangerous. It's dangerous. <laughs> and this is what how I ended up getting into academia was through my PhD and looking at, because I was in so many Buddhist communities, this... And yeah. also hanging out with all of these people into an advice of Vedanta. There's yeah. there's no bridge. You know, it's like, well, it, these are the ultimate truths. Well, who who is the speaker? And everything is just consciousness. And it's like, yeah, yeah but you're in a body right fucking now that's related to a sociocultural context, you middle-aged white man, you know, with all of your white man privilege and your And what about gender. the kids? What about the kids? We just say fuck the kids. <laughs> Yeah. That's, how the, that's how every conversation with the invite of Vedana goes. It's like, well, okay, are we going to take care of our kids now? Yeah, and it's, you, have to, you have to build this bridge, and it does relate yeah. to ethics. It's like, yes, everything yeah. is consciousness, but hello, right now you're speaking and telling someone, me, you, other, separation, what's your truth here? Like, what is your reality here? And how are you going to live up to your responsibilities? How are you going to help the world? How does that experience impact your day-to-day choices and I think that's the bridge sometimes people don't make and they live in their non-dual ultimate reality realm but they're not actually because they're still in duality they're teaching it to everyone and charging good money and people (laughs) get very confused they get very freaking confused about how to be in the world yeah freaking exactly that's confusing by itself Yeah. I, I'm really interested in your in your PhD, and I don't I don't want to go off on a tangent because this conversation is fantastic, and you have such an enormous basket, you and Rob, to to give. It's like a little toy box in the yoga room, and they can go in there like get any any kind of teaching they want out of that box, and it's it's really profound. But I'm, I'm would you talk to us about what what your what your PhD was in, what your focus was in 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 so in it's related to this conversation about trauma, which also often relates to gender. So essentially, my honours was looking at my, well, I just finished an honours that was on yoga teachers' beliefs about mental health. But when my first honours degree was in relation to women's ex- Western women's experience and Buddhism. And that evolved wow. into a PhD because I was sitting in these Buddhist monasteries, like, oh my gosh, like in Thailand or Malaysia or wherever I was eating crappy food while all the, nun- the nuns worked their asses off all day, meditated all day, all night, and the monks were just coming and going. And I was like, wow, what is this? So it just inspired an interest and I was very into, you know, anything in relation to Advaita Vedanta or non-duality. Yeah. And so my question became around how I, as a woman, like the relationship between these experiences where it me, 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 and some sort of recollection of an experience that is no longer an experience because there's someone having a recollection and that person is gendered, me, a woman, and looking at the ways in which the conversation needed to happen between how these experiences could be translated into understanding the world. And for me at that point, it was in relation to sexual difference and gender. But more broadly, it led to bigger conversations for me about 
how spiritual practice links to social engagement. So how we can be of service. So for example, the yoga space has given away about $1.2 million worth of free yoga in you know, domestic violence shelters and prisons and domestic, though, you know, all of those sorts of things, uh, aged care, because it's the conversation that is sometimes lacking is how those individual experiences where there is no one, how that then relates to being in the world. And, you know, there's a great Ram Dust quote. I read it the other day, something about you may be seeing divine light, but it's no excuse to not know your postcode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <it's> okay. yeah. <laughs> wow. Building that relationship to and that's you know, that's what Rob and I are doing right now. Like we do live in the hills, it's beautiful, but we're we're in it. We're like deeply in suburban life, two kids at school, school fees for their private school because the public school wasn't really good for them near here, you know, we're working, studying. And on the outside it looks very mainstream, but on the inside it feels quite different. But um mm-hmm. I think people find it hard to be in the world. So sometimes mm-hmm. that those kind of non-dual teachings are a real nice bypass of their of their emotional issues often yeah i think i mean i i can relate to that so much i (laughs) I mean everything in me wants to just like like leave society and go join some monastery somewhere (laughs) say sayonara she's been this close to shaving her head all week (laughs) i think getting like doing that too <laughs> so, but I think exactly what you're saying. You know, I when I look kind of back at my younger self, who was very like everything was orthodox. Well, I'm gonna say like I just had all the time mm. and space to like read and study and practice and meditate and do pranayama yeah. and like er- all day long. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was also living at a yoga retreat center. It really literally was all day long. Mine is like emails for the retreat center. Yeah, I remember that phase of your life. <laughs> yeah. And I and- think I've known you that like that long because <laughs> I remember I that. Mm. And, and like, in a way you feel like you're making progress and you're dealing with all your bullshit Why and not, like, right. You're not. You're not. Yes, yeah. exactly. And and there's, it's just so, I mean, you can kind of, I think it's helpful like what you're saying. You can take a really big dose yes. of the yoga. Yeah. And I think that changes you in some it way. Does. Yeah. But then on the other side of it, when you're faced with like actual real life again and you got to pay bills. Relationships. And- <laughs> your parents, with your kids, exactly. with each other, oh, yeah. with friends, yeah. the, with coming into relationship with the world. I think yeah. that's that's the real work. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, was, and then I, you see yourself, and you see your yeah. patterns, and yeah. and then you have to actually like deal with them yes, in some way. Sure. And you can't yeah. you can't like asana it away. No. <laughs> Yeah, I, you, I you was can't in breathe a, it away. I was in the car with Jediah the other day, and it was really important to me that he listened to this Linda Ronstadt song. And I was really like, this is important. This is Linda Ronstadt. Linda Ronstadt's really important. It was Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me by Warren Zevon. I was like, this is something you have to listen to. And then I, I realized that he had his headphones on. He was listening to other music. And I thought we were together. And it was like, I was so extraordinarily triggered. I can't even begin to describe how maddened I was for 
on Dave's behalf. Yeah. And then, so then, but what's cool is that we had a conversation about it. I, I talked to Harm because I needed to be talked down <laughs> for beating the shit out of him. And I was like, this is Linda Rons. And, and it was all about, it was all the same stuff it, yeah. with the yoga class. It was about power mm-hmm. and attachment mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. wanting to transfer me onto him, which was not a consensual consensual relationship at that point like no you must not do anything else but submit why are you not submitting to me so cliche but it's just that saying if you love someone set them free and people need to belong to to themselves and we get in the way of it sometimes if we're holding on too tightly to what we think they should be or how they should be and i think that's also how marriages end and yoga teacher relationships can end mm-hmm. and parents yeah. stop parenting their kids. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I love that. People need to belong to themselves. I think that's the whole essence of yoga, yeah. right? Is yeah. like learning how to belong to yourself. And then you learning can how to, to the world. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I- learning how to like own your practice, do what's right for you so that you can like Exactly. Do but, something good with your time here on this planet. I, I have to say, though, that having a, a conversation with your kid about how <laughs> at the root of the conflict was one person wanting to submit the other. Yeah. And it was about power. Mm. And like he's 12 and we're having a, a complete conversation. But yeah. it's, such a know, great, it's such an important conversation because I think we go yeah. through the world and people don't, it's difficult because people are like, oh, my life is hard. Like I have suffered. And I'm like, true. Like we all have in our own way, mm-hmm. but there's all different layers of privilege that intersect. And when we can see our own power, then we mm-hmm. can be strong in the world, but also we mm-hmm. can create space for other people to belong to the world as well in a different way. To yeah. Us. <laughs> yeah. 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 But we could also have these conversations with our yoga students is kind of where I was, yeah. I was kind of coming to. It's like, you know, instead of demanding that my students submit to me, but having a conversation about what their needs are and how I can provide them. And it's a much healthier relationship. Different. Even yes. for me as yeah. a teacher, that's so, it's, it's a much more comfortable space for me. There's a lot more ease now in the way I teach because I'm like, well, it's not my practice. I'm here to support. How can I support you? This is my opinion. But ultimately, they're not my decisions to make. Yeah. And I think a lot of people yeah. aren't in that situation in many spiritual yeah. traditions. And that's something to yeah. kind of, it's a red flag. Yeah, I think that's a yeah, yeah big red flag. And I, I love that, that idea, too, of like it, what you described just balances like, yes, you're an expert in your field. And being an expert in your field you can still be that expert in your field and that doesn't negate you being able to say, I'm here to support you. What do you need? And I th- this kind of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes. Oh. Yes. It's like, well, you don't really know very much. You start to know a lot. And I think that's, you know, five, six years into intense Ashtanga study authorization, people are like, ah, I know everything. And then yeah. all you know, and then when you become an expert, like what you both have been doing for like decades, then you're like, well... I know what's real and true, but also I'm quite aware of the limits of my knowledge yeah. and okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, and just the, 
giving someone authority over their own body or their own health or their own choices doesn't take away anything that that you have experienced. And I think sometimes we we create this dichotomy when we're in this student teacher relationship that if you don't do it my way, you're not doing it the right way. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. And so therefore you're not going to grow or you're not going to get the same benefits or whatever we're sort of projecting onto that rather yeah. than embracing because it is difficult to embrace that there are a multiplicity of perspectives and ways and actually probably in the end we're all going to kind of you know get to where we need to be. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. Exactly. It sometimes it's not the right time and sometimes yeah. You know, yes, I think you ha- we all need to be open to our practice, to allowing life to change mm-hmm. us. Yeah. 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 And then I think, as you're saying, adapting our spiritual practice with the changes that life brings, because I think that's really crucial is that, that you know, life is, is unpredictable mm. and <laughs> we have to be flexible in yeah. how we're responding to it. And that also includes our spiritual practice, right? And if it helps people to know the research, a recent a little while ago, a publication came out. It's quite high level research that said it doesn't actually matter what style of yoga you do, in order Amazing. to have all of these kind of transdiagnostic, you know, impact on yeah. your on your well being. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Or when they got that's all a- the studies and they put them all together, and they're like, this is not working on style of practice yeah that is that's a good study (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah that's a cold shower so before we close what is it about yoga that actually helps to have these really profound effects for our nervous system for our mental emotional cognitive health is it like just breathing and stretching and moving is it awareness is it what are the things that are kind of the I think it's the, the testing factor. The top down and bottom up. So essentially mm-hmm. the top down is we start to train ourselves to mm-hmm. breathe, to move with awareness. And then what starts to happen is over time when we're in difficult situations or we're dysregulated, we don't have to tell ourselves anymore. Our body just kicks in and reminds us or just does it. It just start, you know, we just take mm-hmm. a deep breath. So mm-hmm. it's dose when we practice something consistently over time. It doesn't even have to be a lot. Some of the research is like 12 minutes a day consistently. Then we have this embodied sense of well-being that we don't need to direct our body to have. It just starts to, starts to happen. Oh, that's mm-hmm. fantastic. That, when I was training school teachers, a, a metaphor that I would use for them was uh, Chuck Yeager. And that when Chuck Yeager was like falling out of the sky in an airplane, he would go through a protocol of steps to get himself out of trouble. Yes. But the hardest thing about doing a protocol to get yourself out of trouble is remembering that you have a protocol. Yeah. <laughs> and that you have to breathe yeah. to remember that you have a protocol. Yeah. yeah. And like remembering to breathe is the hardest fucking one yeah 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 and i think that's the thing you have to practice creating the rhythm it's if we have the rhythm of practice Mm. it's it just can help carry itself and i think that's why rooms such as mysore rooms worldwide are so important if they're trauma informed and inclusive and you can question Mm. because it just provides a container for all of that work Mm. and a sequence that you know is adaptable you can make it gentle 
in order for us to, to kind of heal. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And also, would you say just, uh, I, I hate ending, um, <laughs> but That's a would, you, of ADHD is really. would you say that, that it's helpful to include all of those aspects like meditation, you know, breath work or pranayama oh, right. and yoga asana, or is is what one, is a proper dose? Yeah, like is one more powerful than an, another no. or is it doesn't matter? It's a really great question and nobody knows the answer to that yet. And oh. I think what's important, what I believe, my kind of oh. hypothesis would be that a little bit of breathing, asana mm-hmm. and a little bit of breathing or relaxation training simply because the postures give the nervous system something to work with. And that's why I like something stronger. Like even if it's holding a goddess or an uktasana or a squat, something that allows you to, you start to find an intensity. You have to down-regulate with your breath because it's that training ground for life. So I actually believe that asana is really crucial and essential Mm -hmm. to, to the process. And then you only have so much time for everything. If you can do a dynamic practice, you don't have to go to the gym or go on a jog. You know, you want to take care of your health in a variety of ways. Yeah. 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 But having, including something that it sounds like to me, like that has some you uh, stress. Is that how you say? Like, like an acute stress in that complete is. stress cycle. Yes. Yeah. And it's helpful that you can. That's essential I'm, completing I'm the cycle. What? What's a, what's a stress cycle? Well, there's like positive stress and negative yeah. stress. Okay. So it well, has a positive stress. When you have you early childhood it. trauma, for example, you jump. Yes. That's why people who have a history of early childhood trauma, they don't have a lot of heart rate variability. So quite often they have low heart rate variability, if I'm getting that right. I'm not really sciencey in that way. Um, so we want to learn to regulate our nervous system. So to move in and out of activated and then calm. So we want to have yeah. that flexibility, yeah, the nervous mm-hmm. system. Right, so you introduce some variability into your nervous system in a controlled setting. That's right. Then you have, a, you have a, a positive response, and then you're able to proactively manage your, your dysregulated stress response in the real world. Yeah, yeah. it's like a little microcosm okay. of a bigger macrocosm, and that's why okay. consistency is key. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like Marichi Asana D is helping you to learn to breathe through yeah. your kid acting out. Yeah. Well, I would call I would say Kapatasana does that. Yeah. All of it. It just depends. It depends which which one you're on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't really matter which one you're on, actually, right? Well, that's, that's the why whole I think point. Sangha works because it's like a container. It's like five, six days a week. Do this yeah. thing. As long yeah. as, for me, you pop some yoga nidra in or a little bit of lo- much longer relaxation and you don't push mm-hmm. yourself. I don't, I don't pull myself into anything anymore. I don't pull myself into half lotus or leg behind the head. I don't get many, I don't get adjustments. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 It, and uh, that speaks to like the intention of the practice too, in a way, right? Like kind of taking the the ego out of it or trying to prove your Ooh. worth through asana yeah. rather mm-hmm. than like heal your body. body ages it's yeah it's a downward slide i'm sorry everyone <laughs> you, know, you can although mark robbins is pushing back against that but he's not going to just throw ashtanga yoga right so that's the thing yeah. i do weights as well he's a middle-aged man yes. i know that guy <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes your body does need more than just posture yoga postures yeah 
Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on and for such a beautiful discussion. Yeah. It was so great to connect with you again. It was really good to speak with someone who speaks so quickly because you really get a lot of information (laughs) packed in. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but that episode left me feeling totally re-inspired to dedicate and commit to doing a regular yoga practice, to giving myself a dose of yoga every day, whether it's breath work or meditation or yoga asana. I am diving in full force for 2024. That's my commitment. What's your commitment? Are you re-engaging your practice if you let it kind of go by the wayside at the end of 2023? Or do you have a different goal, something else that you'd like to focus on for 2024? I would love to hear what is your focus? How are you going to regulate your nervous system, create mind-body integration, uh, develop more awareness, more love, compassion, justice? What do you want to focus on for 2024? What is your word or your intention? Mine is to really dive into deepening my spiritual practice. And part of that means using the tools of yoga and pranayama and meditation to deeply connect with my inner guide, with my God and my higher wisdom on a daily basis. Uh, I'd love to hear what your intention is for 2024. DM me at Harmony Slater Official on Instagram and let me know. Let me know what you thought about this episode and what you're working on for 2024. I would love to know more about you and your dreams and aspirations and support you in whatever those might be. So I look forward to connecting with you over there on Instagram. And until next time, I hope that you have a beautiful practice and a beautiful beginning to your new year. That's it. We've concluded another episode of the Finding Harmony podcast. I just want to thank you so much for doing the work that changes the world, starting with yourself. It truly does make a huge difference. Please make sure you have your automatic downloads turned on wherever you listen so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. I have so much more magic I can't wait to share with you. Lastly, if you're on Instagram, I love connecting and hearing from you. So come on over and say hello at Finding Harmony Podcast. And you can also come say hello to me personally at Harmony Slater Official. Thank you again for being here. I cannot wait to share more with you in our next episode.